Thank you, Betty. Good morning. I have to change gears here and grab my my stuff. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Mike McIndoe. I'm a long-term member of this church. I've been here since '98. So that, in some people's eyes, that's a long time, and other people's eyes, I'm just a newcomer. Um, it's great to be here this morning, and uh, I wanna. I want to welcome all the guests. Wow, we've got a lot of guests here. Welcome uh, on this beautiful Sunday morning, not only to Nelson, but to the Nelson Covenant Church. And it's, it's truly wonderful to see so many, so many guests with us this morning. Um, and I want to just especially thank my family. These are Inika's two sisters, her brother-in-law, and I'm going to get choked up here. And her mom, Oma. You know, those of us that are fortunate enough to have a powerful person of faith in our lives, we know God so much better. And that's the mission. And we're going to talk about mission this morning. And we don't know what God calls us to do, but in this wonderful woman, she's a rock. She's been through a life from Nazi occupation, privation, She's had all of the bad balls thrown at her, and she's been a pillar. She's been a rock. And she's had a huge influence on me in my walk with Christ. So thank you, Oma. (laughs) Now, the hard part. Um, I have to get myself together here. It's hard to fill in for Jeff Strong. Jeff is a wonderful preacher. Um, But one of the things that I'm able to do is I'm able to help him a little bit as he uh, recoups and takes some time off. This preaching is a hard business, and I'm glad Jeff has some time off. And he asked me to continue uh, his insurrection series on the study of Mark. It's really hard to follow in his footsteps, but I'm going to try it this morning. So as we go into um, our service this morning, we're going to read scripture, and I'm going to have it up on the projection screens, but I'd invite you to to join with us, uh, either with your own Bibles or with the Pew Bibles, um, and we're going to go into it. Before we begin to read Scripture, though, I would like to consider this challenge from that great preacher, Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon calls upon us, whenever we read Scripture, to do so in a threefold way. Spurgeon says, the first thing that I want you to do is I want you to pay attention to the language of the author. Today we're going to be reading from Mark. And this is a picture of what Mark is thought to have looked like. Uh, Mark is an interesting character. He wasn't one of the 12 apostles. In fact, when this story took place, Mark was probably a young teenager. Um, Mark went on and he traveled with Paul and he became a protege of Peter. And it's thought that the Gospel of Mark was written when Peter was in jail in Rome and Mark was in Rome as well, and uh, he wrote it at that time. And Mark is considered to be the brash young man who sort of says it like it is. He doesn't mince his words. He doesn't use two sentences when one sentence will do. And his gospel certainly reflects that message. 
So that's the language of Mark. This is Mark. This is who we're listening to this morning. Spurgeon says, secondly, listen very carefully to hear the mission of the church. Today, it's all about mission. And we had Betty talk to us. Listen carefully as we read the scripture to hear the mission of the church. And finally, Spurgeon calls upon us to listen carefully for the hope of Jesus. So as we listen to this story told by Mark, let's listen in his language for our mission. Let's listen for the hope that Jesus has for everyone here, both collectively as a church and individually as individuals. Mark 6, verses 7 through 13. And I'm just going to start and back up. In verse 6, Mark said, um, he was amazed by their unbelief, the people of Nazareth, when he's preached in the synagogue. And he left and went out to the villages and taught. Then we get to verse 7. And he called his 12 disciples together and began sending them out two by two giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. He told them to take nothing for their journey except a walking stick, no food, no traveler's bag, no money. He allowed them to wear sandals, but not to take a change of clothes. Wherever you go, he said, stay in the same house until you leave town. If any place refuses to welcome you or listen to you, shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you have abandoned those people to their fate. So the disciples went out, telling everyone they met to repent of their sins and to turn to God. And they cast out many demons and healed many sick people, anointing them with olive oil. This is the word of God. This message, um, this morning's message follows Pastor Jeff's message from Mark 6, verses 1 to 6, uh, his Jesus' rejection at Nazareth, which was delivered here two weeks ago. On the outset, these two stories, the rejection at Nazareth and calling the disciples, um, seem like two totally different stories, but they really do build one upon the other. And I'd like to take a quick moment, if I can, and just revisit verses 1 to 6 before we dive into a study of verses 7 through 13. We recall in verses 1 and 2 how Jesus was returning to his hometown of Nazareth and preaching on the Sabbath. Initially, he was received with amazement and, and enthusiasm. Almost immediately, however, this amazement and enthusiasm turns to scorn, rejection, and offense. Pastor Jeff talked about how it scandalized, and he defined the term scandalized, um, the people in Nazareth, the people in the synagogue. It is this rejection, this scandalized reaction of his own people that, le- that leads to Jesus' famous declaration in verse 4 that a prophet is honored everywhere but in his hometown. Finally, in verses 5 and 6, we come to what I think is the real heart of this story. We're told that Jesus did lay hands on a few sick people and healed them. He provided the crowd with a taste, just a little taste, a sample of his grace. However, Jesus did not, and indeed, Mark says, Mark uses the language, could not um, perform any mighty miracles. Now, if you missed Jeff's sermon last week, it's posted on the internet, it's posted on our church website. Um, The way he dealt with this passage 
is amazing. And uh, it's worth listening to. If you didn't listen to it, it's certainly worth listening to again. We read that this rejection of Jesus, his teachings and his mission, left him amazed at their unbelief. And you remember there are two times in Scripture where Jesus is amazed. This is one of them. He's amazed at his own hometown, doesn't believe him. The other one was the centurion, right? Cornelius, who, yeah, he was, ama- he was amazed at his faith. But the rejection in Jesus' hometown, in his synagogue, didn't hinder Jesus. It didn't slow him down for, for very long. It didn't slow his mission down. Now, remember Spurgeon's call. Listen for the mission of the church in Scripture. Here it comes. This rejection, many think, gave impetus to the commissioning of the twelve for their first assignment. This rejection became a launching point for the spread of the gospel, gospel, and was, many surmise, why Jesus had chosen the twelve in chapter 3. It's argued that this is the start of the disciples and you and I preparing for our own mission, preparing for their mission 2,000 years ago. In chapter 4, Jesus teaches the disciples and us about the nature of God's reign, providing private instruction for them. In chapter 5 of Mark, he performs liberating acts for them and for us to witness. Finally, just before he launches the mission, he experiences unexpected rejection in Nazareth as a signal of what the disciples could expect and what you and I can expect today. At the end of Jeff's sermon, he posed to you four questions that he wanted you to consider. Is the gospel, is the gospel of Jesus sometimes hard, sometimes is it scandalous and offensive? Is the posture of our own heart sometimes self-righteous, sometimes a little bit smug in our unbelief, our lack of faith? Are we failing to honor And his fourth question was, do we know rejection? These are hard questions, perhaps even offensive and scandalous ones. They were meant to be. And I want you to keep them in mind as we continue the story from Mark 6, looking looking at verses 7 through 13. So I'm going to go back here. Nope. There we go. Um, And I want to go off script for just a moment. I'd encourage you to read the accounts of these stories in both Matthew and Luke. Um, it's really interesting because it's the same story with slightly different twists, slightly different nuances, and it's, it's worth doing. However, let's look at verse 7. He called his disciples together and began setting them out two by two. Two by two. The Greek phrase here would not be two by two. The Greek phrase would be apostoline. He sent them out apostoline. Apostle, the root of the word apostle, apostoline. Mark will refer to the 12 that get sent out as apostles when they, refer, when they report back to Jesus in Mark 6, verse 30. This is the only time that Mark uses the word apostle in his gospel. The only time. The commentary suggests that there are a number of historical reasons um, why Jesus would send them out apostling, two by two. First, a partner provides strength, protection, and companionship. Second, the partner provides credibility. In Deuteronomy 15 through 19, it was required that two or three witnesses 
had to be there in order to convict a person of crime because a single witness was likely to make a mistake. For the same reason, one witness had less credibility than two. Maybe this is why when the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Warrens come knocking on our doors, they're always in pairs or greater, right? Um, A partner holds people accountable. A person is less likely to succumb to temptation when they're accompanied by a partner. So he sends them out apostling, two by two. And in verses 8 and 9, he sends them out with the barest of essentials, a walking stick, no food, no traveler's bag, no money. He allowed them to wear sandals, but not to take a change of clothes. He wanted them to trust God to provide for their needs. They were to concentrate on their mission. I think that it's pretty simple here. Keep your focus and keep it simple. Don't let things cloud the issue here. Warnings about the trappings of affluence need to be heard again today. Especially for us, we live amidst the greatest affluence in world history. Jesus wanted his apostles to keep it simple, not to let affluence get in the way of mission. In verse 8, he even forbade them taking a traveler's bag. What on earth is a traveler's bag? This is one of those ones that I've skipped over, but when I dove into it, there's, <laughs> the scripture's amazing, right? A traveler's bag, you know what a traveler's bag is? Anybody know? It's a bag and a stick. And the traveler's bag would be the bag that the itinerant rabbis would carry around and open up to beg for money when they preached. It's how they, it's, it's how they looked after themselves. It's how they paid for their way. Jesus says, now, you don't even take a traveler's bag. He's not talking about a backpack or a suitcase. He's talking about a begging bag to get money, right? Um, Clearly, he warns anyone who is willing to listen that affluence can get in the way of mission. The apostles were not to be concerned with either taking money or asking for money. Hmm. I wonder as I read through these and, and, and learn about this, I wonder how often I have put off something that God was urging me to do because I was not ready. Needed a little bit more cash, better set of clothes, better education, one more paycheck, new brakes on the car. I'm just not good enough. God, ask somebody else. Betty and I had that conversation this morning. We have to listen to that little voice. But more than just listen to that little voice, we have to be prepared to act when we hear that little voice. In fact, Jesus sent out his disciples with literally only the clothes on their back on the most important mission in the history of mankind. Can the message for us be that the less we have, the less baggage we carry, the more powerful our mission can be? Hmm. Scripture can be pretty provocative at times if we take it literally, can't it? The beauty of doing something like standing up and delivering a message in church is that you need to spend lots and lots of time in prayer and preparation, delving deeply and thoughtfully and prayerfully into God's word. It has huge benefits. The greatest, perhaps the greatest takeaway for me in preparing for this sermon was the command of Jesus that I hear Jesus say, keep your mission simple and focused. I'm going to carry this command nurture it, and try to honor it as a yardstick for my life as I move forward. I think Spurgeon would say to me at this stage, Mike McIndoe, this is the hope that Jesus has for you in 2016. This is one of the messages I heard in Scripture. 
the living scripture. Let's move on to verse 10. When you enter a village, be a guest in only one home. Jewish custom at the time was to offer hospitality to travelers. Jesus wanted the disciples to to accept this hospitality, to stay in the first house that offered them a place to stay in each city or town that they visited. With the specific command, and, and here we are diving deeper, to stay in the same house. It's so interesting when you take time to really dive into Scripture. Why would Jesus specify the same house? Again, we come back to keeping the mission simple. Keep it straightforward. Keep it on task. Jesus didn't want the disciples cherry-picking. He didn't want them going in and here's the first house that comes up and they're, they're camped out on the futon or on the basement floor and along comes somebody with a big house with a nice bedroom and ensuite and go, oh, I'm going I'm to move over. No. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. And don't let the people argue about who's going to provide you hospitality. You go to the first house and you stay there. You go to the first house and you stay there. There's a message there for all of us, isn't it? He wanted the apostles to be focused on the task at hand, their mission. Not, not the house with a nice bathroom, not the fancy place, on their mission. That's what was so important. And so the twelve were told to continue the mission in households. This was not unanticipated in light of Jesus' own successful activities in the homes surrounding Galilee. Jesus had huge success in teaching in people's homes. Synagogues with established religious traditions and authorities were not always welcoming to new ideas. We certainly, uh, we certainly saw that at the synagogue in Nazareth, and we're going to hear more about it in verse 7 when we read about and when we hear about Jesus run in with the Philistines. It's, it's going to be great. Um, I'm sorry, with the Pharisees, with the Philistines. There's a slip. <laughs> God calls us to let go of some of the assumptions and rules that we have about how we've always done things. Beware of the synagogues. Sometimes it's offensive and scandalous. It certainly was offensive uh, to the Pharisees. In his commissioning of the 12 disciples, Jesus understood that rules and legalities could sometimes be more of an obstacle than an aid in their spiritual journey. Jesus wanted the disciples to know that they would travel the open roads in Palestine penniless and expected to be welcomed with open arms. But he also wanted them to know that the gospel message was a hard one to preach and a hard one to hear. It wasn't always popular. It wasn't always easy. It didn't automatically earn respect, especially at home. But in verse 11, he instructs us, if any place refuses to welcome you or listen to you, Shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you have abandoned those people to their fate. So here we are listening in the language of Mark. The symbolism here would have been abundantly clear to every first century Jew. This was a message just huge with symbolism. Jews returning from Gentile lands would, before they entered a synagogue, symbolically shake the dust off their feet as a gesture of cleansing and contempt before they entered a synagogue. When the disciples shake the dust of an unreceptive village off, they are, just like the Jews would be as they went into a synagogue, they are declaring that village as unreceptive, as pagan, announcing God's judgment on the village, washing their hands 
of further responsibility for that village. The gesture serves as a warning to the offended villages and frees the disciples to move on to more fertile fields. They got it. It's harder for us to understand because we don't have the context. But the, the first century Jews would certainly have understood that. Just like Jesus did after the people of Nazareth rejected him. What did he do? He turned right around and went out to the villages and began teaching. He washed his hands of it. This very symbolic instruction would have been very clear. The responsibility of the apostles was faithful proclamation. They were not to waste time arguing. Um, They were not to waste time dealing with rejection. Jesus clearly demonstrated this in Nazareth, and it's a lesson that was important for the disciples, and it's important for us today. This part of the message really resonates with me. It especially resonates with me. It seems to me that Jesus is saying, if they, those people out there, 2,000 years ago and today, reject the message, it's their problem, not the messengers. I know this is simplistic, but the freedom of walking away from those who refuse to believe allowed the disciples to be more effective in dealing with those who did believe. Don't waste time with those who are smug in their self-righteous unbelief. Move on. The gospel is amazing. And it's amazing that it's so alive today and so relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. And so the disciples went out on mission. What did they do? They called upon all the people they met to repent. They cast out many demons and healed many sick people, anointing them with olive oil. Okay, here we go. When I get into Scripture, I find these interesting side trips that I never noticed before. I've read this story many times, but I've always glossed over the little reference to olive oil. So the history teacher in me says, there's got to be a story here. And of course, there is a story. And of course, the first century Jew would understand what the story was. They would understand what the significance of olive oil was. Unlike Jesus in the day, his disciples were called to anoint with oil. By the time of Mark, anointing with oil was a regular ministry of the church. It was used to mark people for special leadership, um, and it was used in many different ways. But the anointing mentioned in this verse had to do with healing the sick and casting out demons. Where did this practice originate? Well, most first century Jews would say, well, it, it came from when the shepherds would have a sheep that would get tangled up or hurt or scratched or whatever, and they would clean the wounds and they would anoint them with oil. It would promote healing. They would get that. Oil, healing, care, shepherds, right? Suddenly this passage makes more contextual sense. And let's apply it to today's world. One of my favorite speakers is a gentleman by the name of Stephen Lewis. Stephen Lewis is a well-known Canadian humanist who was the NDP, I think he was the NDP premier, wasn't he, Grace, in Ontario. He was also the Canadian AIDS ambassador to the United Nations. Lewis is an avowed atheist. Recently, he was called upon to speak to the graduating class of Redeemer College in Ontario. Redeemer College is a very conservative Christian college with a very strong reform background. Why on earth would they invite this famous atheist humanist to address their graduating class? Redeemer College is where Jeff graduated from, so they've got to be pretty good. Lewis often talks, always in amazement, 
about how, no matter where he was in Africa, in the tiniest, remotest village, in the most hopeless situation, in the most heart-wrenching place that you could possibly know, who would he run into? He runs into these Christians. He runs into Christian doctors. He runs into missionaries. He runs into aid workers in the darkest of dark places. He is amazed that these Christians are out there serving. He was amazed, but I'm not. The Christians that Lewis encountered were simply part of a long lineage that goes right back to Christ's mission, that goes right back to the Twelve. They were bringing healing. They are bringing healing and comfort to the most wretched amongst us. The disciples sent out by Christ to heal and anoint with oil were clearly meant to be seen as a force for good, a force for healing, a force for reconciliation in a hurting world. I wonder, as we listen to Betty talk about the darkness of Russia, I wonder, as I listen to all of the stuff that's going on in the States around the shooting of blacks and the shooting of policemen, I wonder, uh, I wonder if we don't need to listen all the hurt and violence and we're in today's society, I wonder if we're not meant to be called to be the same witnesses and disciples. as a force to bring healing uh, and reconciliation to a hurt world. Hmm. Is this our mission? Spurgeon would suggest it might be. Jesus and the disciples lived simply. They did not hide in the suburbs. They stayed in the downtown east side where they lived and mingled with the crowds. They spoke the truth, they challenged the status quo, and importantly, they lived lives of service. Don't we need more people like them today? It seems to me that we need people who will speak the truth and sometimes shake us out of our comfortable lives. One of the commentaries I read suggested we need people who will comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. (laughs) I really like that. Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Oh, there we go again. That scripture can be uncomfortable sometimes. We need people who will cooperate with God's plan for their lives. We need people of faith, and we need people of active faith. Just like the people of Nazareth did not really know Jesus, his own hometown crowd, is it possible for us to be in the same situation? We can understand him, we know what he can do for us, but we often play it safe and refuse to take risks. We refuse to act on our faith and allow our faith to blossom. Who wants to risk offending their neighbors by being too Christian? How often are we afraid of speaking out or up in our workplaces because we fear ridicule? Do we, hide, do we try and hide our faith at school because it's just not cool? Right? Are we fearful even about expressing our faith in our family? We're truly blessed in this church. Look at some of our youth, our YWAM missionaries, Blair, Kel, Robin, Betty Anderson, Ed DeVries is in Nicaragua. I mean, Ed's a young guy. He's at least five years older than me. And what's he doing? We all know Ed hates heat. He does. Can you believe it? And where is he? He's in Nicaragua with the Gideons. That's amazing. These missionaries, and Ed's a missionary, just like Betty. These missionaries understand what it means to abandon the safety of the sidelines and willingly take risks in mission. What a great example to all of us that they are. But 
we know that God uses ordinary people as well, a lot. We do not have to be called to a foreign field to be a missionary. In our ordinary lives, we've been given a mission. Oma is a powerful missionary to me. Jesus was an ordinary man in the eyes of the people of Nazareth, but he was God in human form and could do extraordinary things. Every one of us, every Christian, has a part to play in God's master plan. We may see ourselves as ordinary, harmfully ordinary, harmfully unequipped, untalented, but if we have faith, we can be extraordinary, extraordinarily powerful and effective. Believe this, Jesus did. He did. This story, this, this scripture follows his rejection, the rejection of Jesus by the people who knew him best, rejecting both him and his ministry. But we learned that Jesus, while disappointed, refused to let rejection slow him down. He knows, Jesus knows, we'll all face failure and rejection at some point in our lives. He knows this instills a fear, sometimes a paralysis in all of us. It might be a sense of failure as a provider, failure in life, rejection from somebody close to us. These are common situations every one of us will face. Jesus did, but he kept on going. When he sent the 12 disciples out, he prepared them to handle failure. He does the same for us. He constantly prepares us through his word, if we put ourselves into it, and through our faith. If we want to do something for the gospel or for God, we have to believe and behave accordingly to the word of God. We must have faith and the courage to let our actions match our faith. Amen? Amen. Pastor Jeff professes to be a big Star Wars fan here. My wife, Inika, is shaking her head. She doesn't want me to do this. I have a confession to make. I'm not a big Star Wars fan. I like Indiana Jones. I know. Shocking but true. I'm sorry if I've disappointed you. The Indiana Jones trilogy was Steven Spielberg and Harrison Ford. It's great cinema. And you add Sean Connery to it. Voila, it's magic. Right? In the final scene of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, our hero, Indiana, is making his, Harrison Ford is making his way through the booby-trapped caves in order to secure the Holy Grail, the only device that can save his father, Sean Connery. Bear with me. This is applicable. Okay. <laughs> After successfully navigating through the obstacles, Indiana finds himself standing beside a big stone lion head. Does anybody know the scene? There's a few heads nodding, right? And what's in front of him? A big precipice, a big chasm. It's a huge chasm, and about 50 feet on the other side is where the grail is. The only clue about conquering the chasm is... Only in the leap from the lion's head will he prove his worth. Indiana recalls this. He knows what's required. Mustering all his strength, including placing his hand over his heart, he steps out, and we all think he's going to tumble down into the bottom of the hole, but what happens? The pathway miraculously appears. He walks across it, and he saves his father. A firm pathway, invisible to the naked eye, What was required of Indy? Faith? No, more than faith. Faith alone, a mere belief, an academic understanding of what was required, it wouldn't have conquered the abyss. It wouldn't have gotten him to the other side. Indiana was required to demonstrate his faith through action. Immobilized belief was not sufficient. It is not sufficient in our lives. 
Faith-based action was required by Indiana. It's required of you and I. Betty can have all the concern about people in Russia. It doesn't mean anything if she's not prepared to go there and act upon it, if we're not prepared to pray in active support of her. Indiana retrieves the grail and he rescues Sean Connery who lives to make another film. Great. What about us? It is when we exercise faith-based action that we allow Christ to do deeds of power through us. Here it is. Please pay attention. When we step out and actively exercise our faith, it doesn't matter the situation. We're all missionaries. When we step out and exercise our faith, the world will be blessed by our having been here. When we step out and actively exercise our faith, the world will be blessed by our having been here. I believe that this is the story of Mark 6, verses 7 through 13. It's the story of the calling of the apostles to be missionaries. But more than that, make no mistake, it's the calling of you and I to mission as well. Charles Spurgeon would say, this is the hope of Jesus given to us in Scripture for every one of our lives. Amen. Let's pray. God of God and King of Kings, you called and anointed David, you called and blessed Paul, and through your son Jesus, you called the twelve to your mission. In our time, you have called us. God, we pray that you enable us to trust you above all voices, beyond all of our prejudice and fears. God, give us courage to follow and serve you amongst our neighbors, both here and far away, and Lord, with one another in the body of Christ. God of the kingdom, hear our prayer. Amen.